G'day and thanks for joining us for another Australia Talks podcast, the official podcast of the r slash Australian subreddit. I'm DK and I'm joined as always by my two lovely co-hosts, Deep and Panda Bear. Today is Tuesday the 30th of May and our topics this week are India's Prime Minister Modi was here in Sydney and why are electric vehicle sales still lagging behind internal combustion? Then we'll jump into this week with in Australian history. And as always, we'll finish off with the Forex bottle top question. But before we get into all of that, my voice is still very husky there. But <laughs> how are the two of you today? Uh, I'm not too bad. So this is Panda Bear. So um, I'm going quite well, just been studying away and studying and doing more study, and then in my spare time, I'm studying. So. Oh, you're a, you're, a keen, you're a keen bean, Panda Bear. Yeah, I've had my uh, I have my parents down from Sydney for a, a few days, just dropped them off to the airport before this podcast, so that was uh, was great to have them down. I had a good, good feed. Uh, one of the things that took my interest as I was going through the week, I was coming back from uh, a trip up to the, the up to the well, the shops. I mean, they're about twenty k's away from where I am, and coming back, just couldn't sort of work out what was happening up ahead. But there was when I got closer, there was a woman in her PJs chasing a chook across the road just near the the roundabout. So I pulled up, and the cars on the other side pulled up, but. The problem was she had a mate on the other side, and when the, when the chook got to the other side of the road, it saw her mate and ran back the other way. So I had about had about two minutes of this lady in a pajama and a mate trying to catch this chook in the dressing gown, and then a couple of people got out of their cars, and I thought, well, there's no point me contributing. And finally, the chook ran off into the bush, and they chased after it. And I thought, okay, I got it. I got to get home. So, I'm assuming they caught it. But yeah, that was a funny little interlude. <laughs> <laughs> I um. What about you? What have you been up to, DK? It's actually it's funny you say that because I had a, a similar but very different <laughs> similar. Uh, yeah <laughs> situation. I was I was driving along uh, uh, the, the the road. Um, and up here, you know, it's a very touristy area, and I was sort of cruising along uh, a, a spe- specifically busy tourist area, lots of restaurants and that sort of stuff. And I was going quite slowly, knowing that there's, you know, people just sometimes freely step out in traffic and things like that. Uh, and there was a pedestrian crossing coming up, and I sort of cruised to a stop, and I could see there was a woman on a, uh, like me, you know, one of those mobility scooters, uh, an older woman, and she was waiting to cross the road, so I stopped. Uh, and she starts to go, and it just completely dies in the middle of the road. Oh no! Like no, I initially I just thought I don't, I didn't really know what was going on, but it, she completely came to a stop, and uh, I had to jump out, and was like, "Are you okay?" And she was like, "It's not working." So there's me trying to awkwardly like push it. It's I don't know. She didn't have the brake on, but it wasn't moving, and <laughs> then, then there's like lots of people crowding around, like trying to figure out what's going. And I'm like in the middle of the road trying to shove this woman along, and oh, it was it was it was not very graceful. It was very chaotic, very funny. She was terribly embarrassed about the whole thing. Oh, um, I bet she was poor, poor thing. 
oh, I felt so bad for her. But of course, my car's now, you know, there's a line of traffic behind me. So basically, once we got her off, I just I had to, I had to run away because uh, <laughs> I couldn't really hang around. Um, so yeah, it was a bit, it was definitely a bit weird, weird of a situation. But oh, oh, that was a good, that was a good deed for the week. Yeah, yeah. You're, going, you're going to heaven now, DK. Ah, uh, you know, ah. Uh, yeah, you know. that's a bit possibly a bit extreme, but you know, you'll spend less time in purgatory. Yeah, that's it. Look, look, I've probably already spoiled all my good karma um, in the last few days. So, yeah, no, anyway. Yeah, no, I just thought I'd get your hopes up a bit and sort of dash them when you actually got there. But, um. That's it. Speaking of going to heaven. Yeah, you stole my segue. <laughs> Speed of going to heaven. Uh, just up top, we wanted to mention that uh, Tina Turner, the legendary rock and roll singer, has died at the age of 83. Of course, you might be wondering, what does Tina Turner have to do with an Australian podcast? Um, the one and the only, the nutbush. And I think every person in Australia knows or has done the nutbush dance. It's uniquely Australian. Um, I trust the two of you have done it a number of times. Oh, I have done the nutbush several times. Many times, many, yeah. many times. Even Bob Catter does a nutbush. Oh, I can yeah. I can imagine Catter. You know, it's funny you said that. I can imagine Catter doing the nutbush and doing it well. It's his favourite dance, I imagine. He's actually a nice bloke. Yeah, I, I think so. I'd have a beer with him. He'd have some good yep. stories. yep. Yeah, crazy old man, but his heart's in the right place. Yeah, yeah. But you don't get yeah. to be a local member for 40 odd years if yeah, you haven't got something going for you. Yeah, true. Speaking of. Uh, Let's go back to Tina. Well, speaking of politicians that have been in office for a long time, India's Prime Minister Modi was in Sydney last Tuesday. And to a rock star landing, I should say. Fans of the Indian leader chartered a Qantas plane to make it from Melbourne to Sydney, and they chartered buses all over the country to make it to Sydney's Olympic Park to see him. Over 20,000 people attended his address at Olympic Park. Uh, the Indian Prime Minister's last visit to Australia coincided with the G7 summit in 2014. Meanwhile... Plans for Joe Biden, uh, President, Prime Minister, President of the United States. Uh, his visit to Sydney was derailed by the his decision to cut short his trip, skipping Australia altogether, uh, which actually meant the Quad meeting had to be cancelled. His ah, last, that it, last visit to Australia, but well, hang on, we'll get to that. Uh, the last visit by an Australian to the sitting by a sitting US president was Barack Obama in 2014 for the G7. So it's been a while. Do you think uh, Biden just forgot where he was going? Oh, stop it. No, <laughs> New South Wales police threatened to taser him. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That was a threat. Oh, he's, right? he's, reached, he's reached the age of tasering, has he? <laughs> yeah, he's a threat now. He's a, he's a dangerous American on the loose. Stop slowly approaching with a pen that he's just signed an agreement with. <laughs> mm. Yeah, that's right. It's a fountain pen. It's sharp on the point. Yeah, it's it's sharp. 
God. All right. So, uh, what was <laughs> in his control, to... DK? For goodness' yeah. sake. Come Come on. On. Uh, what was what was his purpose to come to Australia? O- originally, the quad meeting was being held in Sydney. Uh, for those that don't know, what is the quad? It's officially called the Quad Quadrilateral Security Dialogue, also known as the Quad. Uh, it's a strategic security dialogue between Australia, India, Japan, and the United States, and is maintained by talks between member countries. That seems very deliberately vague. Um, hmm. Though he did genuinely actually get some work done while he was here. Uh, he did tell crowds on Wednesday afternoon that his government would soon be establishing a new Indian consulate in Brisbane. Uh, this comes after years of lobbying by community leaders as India is the third most travelled to country after New Zealand and Indonesia, which is mostly Bali, if I'm, if I'm honest. Uh, so New Zealand is number one, I- Indonesia slash Bali is number two, and the third is India. Uh, the consulate currently is in Sydney, so anyone in Brisbane, you know, it's it is a way to travel. Sorry, um, just back backtrack there. I just I just vagued out of then, and I just realised I had heard that backwards. Did you did you say that's a, a India is the third most travelled to destination for Australians? Did I yes. mishear that? Yes. Yeah. Well, wow, yeah, that surprises there's, there's me. There's a huge um, expat community of Indians living in Australia. It's massive, absolutely massive. And it's very regular. They travel back and forward. So they skew oh, the numbers quite right. heavily. Yep. Same as same as okay. New Zealand. So New Zealand really skews heavily. It's not just it's not just like um, you know vacationers. It's mostly people travelling back and forward for family reasons and things like that. Right. Um, I, I, I've got you now. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, Bali is is mostly vacationers. Um. But yeah. So I there was very poor reporting about what else had happened during Prime Minister Modi's visit. So I actually had to go all the way to get the official press release from the Prime Minister's office. So, uh, Anthony Albanese, we know you're a regular listener of the podcast, so I do appreciate your team uh, giving me the information I need. So I'll just quote this. Uh, The meeting built on the outcomes from the Australia-India Annual Leaders Summit in March and reinforced the commitment to open prosperous and secure Indo-Pacific. The leaders discussed the strength of a bilateral trade, investment, business relationships, and iterated their shared ambition for an early conclusion of the Comprehensive Economic Cooperation Agreement. That is quite a mouthful. The two leaders announced the finalization of the Australia-India Migration and Mobility Partnership Agreement, which will promote the two-way mobility of students, graduates, academic researchers, and business people, while also enhancing cooperation to prevent irregular migration and people smuggling. So that's that's actually quite good. Um, we're putting the legwork in now to nip this problem in the bud uh, from both ends, which I think is really important. Yeah. 
the Prime Minister welcomed progress towards establishing an Australia-India Green Hydrogen Task Force and last Wednesday announced the terms of reference for the Australia-India Green Hydrogen Task Force and that, that they had agreed on something. So the specifics about the agreement haven't been released yet, but it is interesting. Prime Minister Albanese's government is really doubling down uh, on this green hydrogen economy that they want to uh, that want to build. So, uh, Prime Minister Albanese also announced that the establishment of a new Australian Consulate General in Bengaluru, expanding Australia's diplomatic footprint there, and it will com- it will connect Australian businesses to India's booming digital economy and innovation ecosystem, and reinforce our growing links in science and technology. Prime Minister Albanese has welcomed India's plans for a consulate general in Brisbane. So, more hydrogen, more security, two new consulate generals, and a new partnership agreement, all in the space of less than 24 hours. They were very, very busy, I suspect. how hard they work and how much they discuss in such a short time. It's, it's almost, a, almost as if a lot of it was uh, agreed about, upon beforehand. No, they were up all night. It would have been agreed before, NDK. Me and I think, oh, of course, of course. We'll, we'll, we'll just try to sort of educate you. <laughs> so, no, I don't know what you're on about? It, it's oh, look, it, it's you know, it, it's just more of the same sort of things. Obviously, the quad. The official quad meeting didn't go ahead. However, they were all present at the G7 summit that occurred uh, the week before in Japan, in Hiroshima. Um, so they had meetings on the sidelines of that. So President Biden not coming to Sydney really isn't that big of a deal considering, you know, the, the conversations. I think the wheels are still moving and and all of that. And I don't think, honestly, I don't think, the value of the quad and things like that is the four leaders getting together. I think it's, I think it's the, the um, interoperability between the CIA, ASIO, I don't know what the Japanese and Indian security services are called, but it, it's the integration of those services and obviously militaries and things like that. So it's all the stuff in the background. But and it's um, in, uh, look, it's in, it's imperative that we increase the power of the surveillance state. So if we can find any way whatsoever to expand it and crush the citizenry, I'm with you. It's a good thing. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> so. Um, yeah, I think we do have to have this sort of cooperation. Like, in effect, Australia is a sort of um, de facto um, major power in the Indo-Pacific, you know, between India, China and Japan, uh, India, Japan and Australia. Um, Australia is one of the only three of the core nations in that country, the core countries, um, the 24 core countries, Western Europe, Japan and the Anglosphere. Um, the only other two countries in the Indo-Pacific, um, apart from um, that are developed countries, are Japan, New Zealand, and Australia. Uh, Australia has the, um, the best logistics and the best and the most stable political system of any of those three countries. Plus it's also the 11th biggest economy in the world. 
Every oh, time yep. that somebody has a problem, like a plane goes missing from Malaysia or there's bushfires in Indonesia or Taiwan has a cyclone, who do they call on? They don't call on Japan, they don't call on New Zealand, they don't call on China, they call on Australia because we are the ones that can always help. You know, we have the best infrastructure um, of any of the countries. Um, <laughs> yeah, New Zealand has sheep, but, um, you know, that doesn't really help. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, that's not fair. They've got volcanoes too. Ah, you win the question. <laughs> so basically they are, their offering is roast lamb. Yeah, they, they do They do actually have a couple. You know, their Navy is not completely a waste of time, but it's more their defence, uh, even from a humanitarian point of view, is really, really sort of planning on Australian support. Remember, there's only like, I think, five and a half million New Zealanders, there's there's that many Queenslanders. Like, it's not a lot of people. You know, that's a population of Greater Sydney. <laughs> like, <laughs> we make that fun is, of them. That's true. Uh, that, we make fun of them, true. but you know, yeah, we do. Are, are, are both of their ships capable of travelling on the Pacific? <laughs> yeah, it is a blue water navy. It is surprisingly. <laughs> yeah, there's um, uh, there's actually a story about that. Like, um, yeah, um. The submarines that were supposed to be getting it was so we can find the Chinese ships after the Americans finished with them. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and so we derailed you a bit there, Ben. Along, I did. I, I do understand your you know, much, much as I have my opinion on government and blah 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 and everything that that the the situation as it is. I do understand uh, your, your your commentary on the Pacific. As a, a designated region and the cooperation that's required between nations in that, so uh, putting my other opinions to the the side, the system as it is, I do see the value in having these meetings in determining ahead of time how we're going to react to uh, positive things and negative things in the region and. I think it is worthwhile having a bit of a plan in place and expressing unity or clearly expressing disunity if that has to be the case so that people are a little bit more informed. So, yeah, I can see your point. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that's a really good – you've made a re, like highlighted a really good point. It, it's important that the, the nations in this region are aware of – you know who the big players are, who the regional players are, and and where the security for the region comes from. And it's not, it's not, uh, you know, Malaysia, Thailand, Vietnam, and the Philippines aren't providing security for this whole region. It's not. It, it's just it, you know, it, economically speaking, like said, you know, when there's a when there's a cyclone in the Solomon Islands, they're calling Australia or we're calling them. You know, before the disasters even happen, we're putting ships to sea because that's just what we do. And um, it, there's no strings attached. Uh, obviously, you know, the, the, the quiet part is that China is uh, trying to push its, its um, weight around in, in this region and it wants to replace... Um, sort of us but the reality is it's aid it's assistance always comes with strings attached yep 
Whereas yeah. we don't, we don't play by that rule. That's not how this works. Um, we respect our smaller regional partners, even New Zealand, uh, mm. and we treat them as equals. Um, unfortunately, you know, culturally speaking, obviously there are other other major powers in this region that don't think the same way. And it's not just China. Obviously, Russia is, is much the same. Um, they don't, they look sort of down uh, upon some of these smaller countries and, and feel like they can just throw money and uh, debt traps at countries uh, and somehow there'll be, you know, that that's their version of power. And uh, it's kind of, I, I think it's really disgusting. It's very, it's very culturally um, uh, different to yeah. what, how we sort of run. Interestingly, um, when the International Tribunal held, handed down its ruling that the South China Sea doesn't belong to China, um, even Russia told them, told China, accept what was said and stop trying to say it's yours. So, oh, did they? That is yeah. that is interesting. So, so Russia, Russia and China aren't as good friends as I think a lot of people think they are. No, no, not at all. Yeah, Russia. Well, China reckons they own Siberia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How's that going to work out? <laughs> yeah. There's yeah yeah look, all of Adam and Churia and all that. Yeah, look, you know, um, yeah, they're not the best of friends, uh, and. Yeah, sometimes it's, it feels like it's the, uh, you know, f f um, enemy of my enemy is my friend type situation. Yeah. Russia also has um, ports on the eastern seaboard that um, relies on the South China Sea to get goods through to those eastern ports. And China have already yeah. passed legislation in yeah. 2014 saying that they can board any ship and charge passage to go through. That was in Hainan. Um, uh, which is in the um, south of China. So, because um, in China, each each um, province has its own government. So there's no real centralised government um, apart from the CCP. Um, each province acts pretty much autonomously. So Hainan passed this legislation to say that they can. Um, board ships and confiscate goods at any time they like. Only China recognises that law, but you know the fact that they made a law like that is um, a bit of a worry. Yeah, and oftentimes those um, you know, legal frameworks are precursors to an expansion of power. So I can understand someone like Russia who depends on that as a significant port being concerned. Oh, yeah. I think they've always been concerned. And the Russians know there's not really much they could do if China does decide that, you know what, I'm going to take this. Out of interest, uh, I think everyone should go and have a look at uh, the region we're talking is near North Korea. And there's a major Russian city called Vladivostok. And if you look at the where the borders are with China there on Google Maps and you go into satellite view, and you just look at how built up the Chinese side of the border is. Like we've got multiple cities, there's rice paddies and fields, and there's very little untouched 
uh, land, and then you look at the Russian side, and there's very little development on that side of the border. So, you know, from a Chinese point of view, there's a lot of uh, free land sitting right there that they have a historical claim on. It used to be part of China, um, and I'm sure the CCP would like would like that land back. Uh, well, you know, hopefully that never happens, but yeah, China and China and Russia, uh, yeah. It, well, look, put it this way: it's it's in Russia's best interest to keep China on their side, but China's under no illusions that um, if push comes to shove, you know. Russia's going to lose, basically. So the other thing with that is each of them wants to be the dominant power. So um, you can imagine how that would work out in a marriage, let alone an international cooperation. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, they've got absolutely nothing in common. Their political systems, their economic systems, their culture, um, um, education systems. There's absolutely nothing in common with the two. Whereas you know, at least between us and the Anglosphere countries and Western Europe, um, our economic systems are all pretty well compatible. Our cultures are all pretty much the same. Um, education systems are reasonably much the same. All, yeah, and um, even our political systems are all fairly well compatible. But Russia and China, yeah, there's nothing in common. <laughs> no, and it comes back to that quote-unquote rules-based uh, world order uh, where... You know, and it, it it basically it's it's based on the idea that we have these international bodies, we have these international laws that we all agree to, and we play by the rules, and uh, that brings prosperity and peace to the vast majority of of the human race. And yeah, it took three hundred years to build this international rules based order. You know, we don't need some Johnny come lately coming in and saying we don't like it. Hmm. Exactly, because the, the Johnny Come Lately is uh, is trying to replace it with their own rules, which benefit themselves and nobody else. So it's just a school. It's 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 a bit petty, almost. It's like a a, um, a school bully, you know. It, it just wants to beat everyone up to show that they're the toughest. Um, what happens to school bullies? Uh, well, I mean, if they're not careful, they get nuked. So. Ah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't think we need to use nuclear weapons against um, China. We don't need to. We actually don't need to. Nah. Um, then, you know, I've, I've done um, not actual military training with them, but I've gone on, um, like, runs um, with them, with their military, and they have, they have absolutely no discipline. As soon as they got around the corner away from their um, commanding officer, they all stopped and lit up cigarettes. And their uniforms were dirty and torn and... Uh, I, yeah, it, it, things have changed a bit. Their, their military has updated uh, significantly over the last sort of five to ten years. Though this is an interesting uh, point of fact: in the nineteen, I think it was in the nineteen seventies or maybe late sixties, uh, because China was a good communist country, they actually abolished military ranks completely. Are you uh, kidding me? Yeah, 
Uh, very, very bad. <laughs> very, very bad. <laughs> yeah. Completely unsurprisingly. Yeah, it turns out you can't make all soldiers the same because that's oh. not how. Like, so when did, when, did, when did you say that was? Uh, I think it was, I want to say it was like, like the late 60s. Something oh. like, I, know it, I know it changed in the 1980s. Um, China had a war against Vietnam. Uh, I think it was 79. And they, the Vietnamese smashed the Chinese. Um, they did very, very poorly against the Vietnamese. I mean, to be fair, everybody does. Don't fight Vietnam. They're very good at what they do. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I've read the Chinese newspapers. China has never had a war with anybody. <laughs> and if they have, they've never lost it. Except Korea and America and um, Vietnam and, um, you know, military incursions into all 14 of the land neighbours. Oh, and India. Let's not forget India. Let's go back to Modi. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so the, the scraps with India are obviously ongoing um, up in the Himalayas around Kashmir, uh, right up in the high mountains. Uh, there's, a, a, I think it's an informal agreement not to use firearms. Um, so they use like clubs and bats and things like that. Is that actually true? Yes. Uh, at, like, you know, I, I just, I, I literally just read a, uh, two months ago, read a science fiction story that was talking about that and that there was no firearms. And I thought, oh, that's a funny premise in there. It's actually true, is it? Yeah. And um, it's been going on for years. Um, and they, we're talking like, Sometimes it's only a few soldiers. Sometimes it's hundreds. Um, and when I say they're using, like, bats and clubs and stuff like that, I'm talking, like, the sort of thing that wouldn't look out of place from, like, medieval warfare. Like, these these bats have spikes on them sometimes. Uh, they look more like, like a mace. Uh, wow. Like, they're horrendous. And, and people die. Uh, soldiers die from both sides. Um and it, it's full on. It's it's yeah. It's it's not good. And wow. unfortunately, the Chinese seem to be getting uh, a bit better at this. They're also one of China's uh, main battle tanks. Uh, now has a, a oxygen generator on it because it's so high up that there's not enough oxygen in the atmosphere to power in an internal combustion engine properly uh and the chinese uh, sorry the indians found they were using india has um t90 battle tanks from russia and uh they turns out the the old russian tanks don't work so good at altitude so there's china definitely has a bit of a an advantage currently but uh it's it's it, this this could be one of these areas that really could spark a major, major conflict between these two countries. It was a war between India and China in the 1960s over this area as well. And I think it's only going to get worse because a lot of the area that they're fighting over is the beginning of um, like rivers and things like that, like the the start of a lot of the major rivers that both countries rely on starts oh. in this region of the mountains. So 
it's in it's in everyone's best interest to control you know the source of the water um and it's yeah look this is one of those flashpoints that could quite easily uh blow up into something really really big really really scary how, how the hell did you get to the situation where you have two nations the size of China and India, the two most populous nations in the world, agreeing that they were going to fight their border, border skirmish with bloody clubs rather than all the modern military weapons. I, I, I don't understand how you actually got to that point and that both sides have said, yep, that's the way that we're going to do it. I'm not sure. I, I, like, look, I, I don't, I don't know the specifics, but what I think has happened was these areas are like extremely remote. We're talking like, you know, this this mountain range further down includes Mount Everest. You know, yeah. um, I think it's a case of there were very few men up in these areas, and without. Uh, approval to engage, you know, the enemy with firearms. They've basically just started beating each other up, and it's kind of gone from there. And now it's a semi-official thing <laughs> that we don't use guns here. This is Fight Club, and we just beat the crap out of each other. Wow, yeah. that's just that's that's just a bit surreal. Really. It is very I mean, weird. That's yeah. that's why I was I was so surprised because when I read it in that novel, I thought, oh, that's a that's a funny premise, but to actually hear that that's reality uh, blows me away a little bit. Yeah, and if you go to this area again on Google Maps, uh, you'll see the borderline is like dashed and moved around um, because it's not officially agreed upon between the two mm. nations, which is why they're having these border skirmishes. Um, they disagree with the, where the border should be and basically they're fighting over it. So, Can we well, I'm going to start treating Go on, Panda Bear. Can we just go back to India and the hydrogen? This is something that yes. I find actually quite, um, quite a good idea. Okay. What happened when we sort of signed the trade agreements and everybody started moving into China 40 years ago, we started, the first thing we had to do to make it the um, the um, manufacturing centre of the world, basically, um, the first thing we had to do was to set up power stations. And what did we do? We set up coal-fired power stations. Um, India hasn't gone quite as far down the line as that, so if we can get in there and start setting up hydrogen power stations, maybe it's a good thing. Um, if we can move all our manufacturing and from America, uh, America's moving a lot of theirs to Mexico, actually, um, and other South American nations because it's just not as cheap to do it in China now. But if we sort of make um, India the manufacturing centre of the world and replace China... Um, if we're setting up these power stations that are powered by hydrogen or renewable energy, um, we're going to be a lot better off as far as climate change goes as well. So I think in that respect, Australia is making um, a positive step. One of the big things that people have been talking about is, um, yeah, 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 it's fine to cut emissions by, what what is it, 20% or 50% or something like that. Um, in yeah. Australia, but we're still exporting all this coal over to China and they're the biggest polluter in the world. Yes. So 
it's not really making any difference. If we start getting on the right foot, footing and setting up these um, hydrogen powered stations and renewable power stations in India so they can take over from China as the workshop of the world or whatever that you like to call them, um, I think that's a, it's a positive thing. And from my understanding, DK and RD, set me right here if I'm wrong, we have a lot of hydrogen. Yeah, I mean we do, and we we have a lot of we have a lot of sunshine that we can make hydrogen with reasonably oh, cheaply as well. We can export um, sunshine. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah, basically, um, and oh, okay. I do kind of like. I know a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about the budget and we were talking about the hydrogen, and I was a bit skeptical at the time, but I do. I've sort of looked into this a bit more since, and I do quite like the idea that. Anthony Albanese's government is looking to the future and going, we can get on the ground floor of this, which you're exactly right. This could blow up and be pun pun intended um, and be oh, a huge, yeah, yeah. Um, and be, and, and be, what was that pain to be? Nothing to do with nuclear blowing up. No, no, no. Um, Shut up. Which which doesn't actually happen, <laughs> but anyway, that's another. Yeah. Uh, it, it look because at, at the moment, not many countries are exporting lots of uh, lots of hydrogen. It's not really, you know, the the quote unquote hydrogen economy isn't really there right now. But everyone's looking at it, going, I feel like this is a bit of a chicken and egg situation. And if we can get on the ground floor, start building that infrastructure up, and start exporting it quickly. And you're right, in places like India, developing countries that need the massive energy infrastructure to be built, uh, the US is thinking the same way. Uh, and I think it's a really good thing that we could get, you know, because obviously we've, we've exported, we've been the, the world's quarry for decades and decades and decades. So if we can replace the quarry with the... Uh, the exported sunshine, I like that. Uh, then, you know, we, we're securing our economy uh, for a lot longer than everyone stops buying coal and, you know, the Australian economy has a massive recession because of it. Yeah, and look, we do have the ability to uh, do a, a number of steps to ever greener things. At, at the moment, India, like uh, China it does have a lot of reliance on coal. Coal in Australia is a lot cleaner than many other areas, so we can still have that market open. But when we're talking about something like hydrogen, if we can move to green hydrogen as an ultimate destination, we can still do brown hydrogen, which, as I understand it, is cracking the hydrocarbons from different fossil fuels to produce hydrogen as an interim step where you have plants that rely... Because once you get hydrogen, it doesn't matter where it comes from, uh, you can still feed your hydrogen energy-producing plants. And if we can then ramp that up into green hydrogen, it allows a transition, a clear transition path that Australia can sell. So we can take uh, people who are dependent on our products from less climate friendly up to very climate friendly. 
and as uh, technology advances, as a nation surrounded entirely by water, H2O, and the ability to crack that water down to green hydrogen, it potentially puts us in a very powerful position worldwide. Exactly right. And, and I think that's really important. We need to take advantage of our lead now to basically drive the next decades of yep. Yep. energy. You know, we've done very well on coal, which is not a necessarily a good thing. But we can now use our position. We're a very wealthy country. We have the know-how. We have the skills. You know, like it, it would be stupid not to um, because if we don't, someone else will. There's a lot of very, very sunny countries. Hydrogen is freaking everywhere. Um, and there's a lot of countries that could very quickly and easily replace us if we don't, um, you know, if we if we decide to lag behind or, or just are uninspired. So... Yeah, look, um, I, I agree, and I think I think you're right too, Panda Bear. That's uh, one of the one of the key elements of this quad agreement uh, between Modi and Australia. Yeah, interestingly, Bill Clinton, um, when he was president, uh, yeah, and who's still Monica, um, he sort of suggested to a lot of the Middle Eastern countries um, with climate change was just becoming. Um, clear what it was doing and Clinton was one of the first to see that he suggested to the uh, Middle Eastern countries take all your money from the oil and put it into uh, solar power you have a lot of sunshine here a lot of desert you can repower solar batteries solar batteries are going to get better as technology goes on and you can supply power to all of Europe Okay, I think Australia is in that position as well. We have a lot of desert here. We have a lot of facilities um, for countries like Indonesia in particular, um, which is supposed to be the fourth biggest economy in the world by 2050. Um, we have that capacity of uh, Indonesia, India, Southeast Asia. Uh, what's that other little place, New Zealand? Um, <laughs> we have the capacity to... Sorry, I shouldn't pick on New Zealand. It's just so difficult not to. Yeah, well, it is. They're in our constitution. I mean, the, how do we have New Zealand in the constitution and not the Aboriginals? For Christ's sake! And to be to, and to be fair, I'd be disappointed if there wasn't a comparable New Zealand podcast that wasn't similarly picking on us. Well, yeah, well, they call us the West Island. So. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Because there's more New Zealanders here in Australia than there is in New Zealand. So. Yeah, I think half of Queensland is Kiwis these days. Hey, bro. God, that's a lot of criminals. Criminals, <laughs> 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 uh, I can think of at least half a dozen that aren't. Uh, I can't think of a good segue. So uh, <laughs> let's talk about why people aren't buying electric cars. Car buying, car buyers researching their next ride are weighing up the grunt of an internal combustion engine or the benefits of jumping onto an electric vehicle trend. Federal Chamber of Automotive Industries data showed that of the 82,137 vehicles delivered to Australia in April, 
Only 8% of those were electric vehicles. The top selling vehicle was the new Ford Ranger uh, and the Tesla Model Y was the most popular EV and it was the fourth most ordered vehicle. So people are buying them, but it's a very small percentage of the market. Um, Australia has really lagged behind the rest of the Western world in EV ownership. And I think it's because of government regulation or lack thereof in certain areas. Um, that's been a major part of the issue. Australia is almost alone in the developed world not having uh, what's called a fuel efficiency standard, which has been in place elsewhere for decades. So the, the government has finally decided to introduce one. Uh after f several failed attempts by the previous governments. Simply put, a uh, fuel efficiency standard will require car makers to sell more fuel efficient vehicles and lower or zero emission cars like EVs. The way the standard works is that car makers are required to, s to keep under a certain carbon emission ceiling relevant to the type and number of vehicles that they sell. And if they don't, they'll face a penalty. So across their whole range, they need to sell, you know, basically it's a bit like a carbon tax. You've got this amount of capacity and, you know, you can sell. I think co companies like Toyota are probably poised to do really well once this uh, comes into play because they have a lot of hybrids. Yeah. Um, uh, I think a lot of their range now is hybrid by just standard. Uh, so... You know they're they're going to be laughing because they're already in the position where they probably don't really have to do much. You know, by contrast, a lot of the other companies are going to be really hard hit. I think by by stuff like that. You know, companies like Mazda that I don't think they have really any hybrids um, or or any electric cars are going to have are going to be scrambling very quickly to, to to make changes, which I think isn't necessarily a bad thing. Um, the government is going to spend the next six weeks consulting on a fuel efficiency standard and will develop its own expectations of EV uptake from that. But some states and governments have specific targets in place already. Queensland has set a target for half of new vehicle sales to be zero emissions by 2030. And the ACT, <laughs> yeah, I know, that's insane. And the ACT has a target of, of 80 to 90% of new car sales to be zero emissions by that time. Experts say to reach net zero by 2050, new car sales will need to be zero emissions by roughly uh, 2035. So that's all new car sales are going to have to be zero emissions. Uh, because of the general lifespan of internal combustion engine vehicles. Obviously, they don't, you know, <laughs> the year after you buy them, they don't fall apart. Well, hopefully not. Yeah. Um, so even by 2050, there's still going to be some internal combustion engines on the road. Uh, the government is going to help this. Uh, they, well, they're already helping this, I should say. Last November, the government passed the $345 million electric car discount bill, which exempts eligible electric cars from business fringe benefits tax and removes the 5% import tariff for families. 
the fact that there is a five percent import tariff on EVs is you know part of the problem. Yep. Uh, and they're also developing much more EV charging stations um and of course they're popping up across the country as well i think we need to get rid of some of the red tape around that make it a bit bit easier but in saying all of that ev sales so far this year for 2023 have more than doubled what they were over the same period last year so people want evs um personally i I would actually love to have an electric car uh just for getting around around town you know going shopping short trips day trips that kind of stuff uh, but it, there's two main things that are stopping me, and I feel like most people have the same issue, and that's the upfront cost and range anxiety. Yep. So EVs are very expensive to purchase new. Uh, even secondhand ones are quite pricey. Uh, obviously, they do have some major advantages uh, that they do generally outlast internal combustion engines. Um the drivetrains last a lot, a lot longer, uh, and the ongoing cost of ownership is significantly a lot less than a traditional internal combustion engine. Not just uh, cost of fuels, but also costs of ongoing maintenance, wear and tear, and all that sort of stuff. Um, the other one is obviously range. Uh, they're limited in range. And personally, my family, we do travel a fair bit. Uh, but, you know, with changes to uh, EV charging infrastructure, it's sort of making that not such a big deal. Um, hmm. But, like, honestly, we're in the market for a new car at the moment. And I'm tossing up between buying a 2023 Mazda 3 because uh, they are very efficient. Uh, they're an internal combustion engine vehicle, but they're extremely efficient. Um, or like a secondhand Tesla. Uh, we, we have solar at home, so it would be really easy for us to just, you know, twice a week keep the car at home and just charge it up, and it costs us nothing. Um, by contrast, my Ute, I think, costs about probably about 50, 60 bucks a week in diesel, which is very good, I should say. I'm not complaining, uh, but... You know, when you consider nothing, zero dollars or fifty dollars a week, you know, it's it does add up over the year. So, I don't know. I think for us personally, having a, a, an electric vehicle and a diesel uh, is d- definitely the way to go long term. Having that range ability with diesel and the fact that you can get it everywhere. Also, um, I like four wheel driving, and I'm not taking an electric car off road. Um, but well, not anytime soon. That those I know those are in the pipeline. Um, but I don't know. What what do you do? Think do either of you have an electric car? And no. do you want one? Would you buy an electric car? Well, that's that's two questions. Do I want one? Would I buy one? Uh, look, the bottom line for me is if it's affordable and can do the job, then it's in the running for a purchase. Where. Um, not well for me. I'm not close. I've, I've got a got an old a, a, a diesel Prado that's you know still got got a lot of uh, kilometres left on it, so it won't be being replaced anytime soon. Uh, but my wife's car, I can entertain the idea of. Um, Actually, forget that. I'm I'm pointing that important to me. Speaking with with her, she's happy to entertain the idea of. Uh, a, a hybrid or an electric provided it has the range 
and the range uh, is an issue for us. I mean, we're we're not exactly a remote; we're semi-rural. But I'd prefer to have uh, my cars travel and power capabilities on the over-engineered side. So I know a lot of the electric cars now are getting up to the the three hundred plus range. That's a good range. I think that's that's an incredibly good range, and the reality is that most of the time that would uh, serve our purpose with driving. However, I don't want to have that as an upper limit. If I had to have an upper limit, I'd want to have something like 500 so that I knew on a particularly busy day when we you know, go up to the city, go back, have to do something in the, the morning and come back and haven't charged it, that we've still got plenty there in reserve. So that's, yeah. that is significance. Let, yeah. Let me let me cut in here just yep. just yep. a smidge. So the brand new model Tesla Model Y, which as we said was the fourth most popular, most ordered car for last month, uh, it, sale price today in Queensland, drive away price is. $73,266 is not cheap, oh. but but standard, not the long range model, just standard, its range is 455 kilometers. Okay, yep. So now they're getting to the point where as standard, you know, they, they do have a reasonably significant amount of range. The, and I, one thing I do know is, because I do know a couple of people that have uh, Tesla Model 3s, and, uh, like, sh- one of them, she said to me, because this was my thing, like, oh, because she lives out of town too, and I was like, oh, like, do you charge it at home and blah, 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 blah. She said, I do charge it at home, but I actually charge it when I'm out and about a lot. And I was like, what do you mean? She said, you know, until you're an, an electric car owner, you probably don't really notice them, but there's actually charges in quite a lot of places, like yes. a lot of shopping yeah. malls and things have them. Yep. So she's like, when I'm, if I'm going, you know, like if I'm going to like Brisbane or something like that, oftentimes I'll park somewhere where I can charge my car, even if it means I have to walk a little bit, a little bit further uh, to get to where I'm going. That way, when I come back, it, it's only cost me a few dollars, but my car is, you know, significantly more charged uh and the range thing especially now on these models that are in the 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 high 400s i think really isn't that big of a deal day to day it's more on those no that's good that's that's cases. very good yeah you know what i mean what about but it also does take into account those those off cases as as well you know there's a lot yeah. of um the the that's a lot of range. So look, yeah, that that equation is is changing. So I got I I'm quite I look I love my diesel Prado, but I'm quite happy to embrace uh, electric cars. It still has to it still has to do the job, but uh, what about know, once they solve though? a few of those issues, what 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 are you what do you think, Panda Bear? Well, my understanding is the batteries were. Um, Deteriorate very quickly, and they're quite expensive to replace. It's so, about ten years, they reckon. It's about ten, which is years. not long in some ways compared to. I mean, I know you gave that um, commentary on the the drivetrain, and we know it's a very simple drivetrain uh, with the, the motor and that. The the batteries is one of those sort of like <clears throat> the battery type of thing, and then the, yeah, you know, it, it gets a bit skipped over. So you're 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 right, Panda Bear. 
Yeah, so how much does a replacement battery cost, DK? Uh, a lot. Uh, right now. <laughs> a yeah. lot. <laughs> yeah, a lot. Well, okay, so uh, I should the, the simple answer is a lot. The, the long answer is it depends. It depends on the vehicle that you have. It depends on the battery in like the battery type that you have and it also depends on the battery infrastructure and or architecture i should say because some batteries they, they, obviously all these batteries are made up of, an, of a number of smaller cells and depending on the type of battery it is you may be able to reasonably cheaply replace the cells that are bad compared to replace the entire battery pack uh. what, what that costs Today is not that cheap, but what that will cost in five, ten years is probably, you know, significantly different. So we are seeing these things are getting much, much cheaper and everything like that. As an example, um, you know, for a lot of these Teslas, we keep using Tesla because it's kind of like, you know, they are they're very popular. They're sort of the industry standard right now. Uh, those battery small, packs, tiny, tiny little factoid with the the Tesla, they have the Model S, the Model. It was going to be the Model E, but they couldn't get that, so it's the Model Three, then the Model X, then the Model Y, which spells sexy. Yes, yes, it does. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I can relate to that. <laughs> m- m- most of these battery packs get 3,000 cycles on them. Um, and a lot of the time you don't need to charge your car every day. Um, but if, if you, you know, if you were to say that you were driving, like we're talking, like to, to need to completely discharge your battery and charge it up, um, that's like, a lot of miles that you're traveling. But even if we did, let's say you completely discharge your battery every day because you were driving lots and lots and lots, went from a full charge to completely empty, that 3,000 charge cycles is the equivalent of like a million kilometers. You know, most people don't drive a car. They don't put a million kilometers on an engine. You know what I mean? So this is where... Sorry? Australia's a pretty big country. I mean, we drive a lot more in Australia than most other countries. Yeah, but, like, honestly, most people don't, unless you're doing a big trip. You know, obviously, trucks and things like that are a bit different. Um, My car is, I got it in July 2020, so it's almost three years old, and I've got just under 50,000 Ks on it, and we drive a fair bit. Like, we would use our car more than the average person. I think the average person only puts like 15,000 Ks on their car a year on average. It's not, it's actually not a lot. Most people do really short trips too. So I actually think for the vast majority of people, an EV completely makes sense. Yep. Yeah. And it does depend where you're located too. You know, most, most people are in an urban environment and an urban environment where you seldom go further than out of suburbs even current uh, EVs are, are more than enough. So, yeah, I'm, I, I, I can accept that. Yeah, I think, so, the, other, like, I think, I think the other thing is, too, I was just reading an article while you were talking. Um, a Michigan company has um, reduced the cost of the battery by about 20%, and they claim that as volume of sales goes up, they can bring the price down more. So I suppose that's something to... 
sort of think about that um, as more people buy electric cars, the um, cost of the cars will come down and the batteries will come down as well. The same as when, um, you know, petrol-powered cars first came in, so the cost came down. Yep. But then petrol went up too, didn't it? So, yeah. Yeah, look, and it, like, I, you know, like I like to say, watch this space. I think moving forward, this is going to be the reality for most people. I think, I think a lot of people will probably move to more of a hybrid before they go full electric just because hybrid cars are significantly cheaper. You know, like the Model Y, y that I just – um, quoted that was that was directly from the website. That price, you know, that that's the driveaway price today. Um, that you can place an order for. By contrast, you know, a, a Toyota, um, a Toyota Camry, which I think standard now, they're all hybrids, um, is going to set you back less than forty grand. So and there look, is a, a, hybrid, a hybrid does change the equation enormously. If you know that you've got that uh, ability to, you know, basically whack a jerry can on the the back and keep yourself going if required, uh, a hybrid is currently for me the sweet spot. Yeah, it is, and I, I think it makes a lot of sense for a lot of people in Australia, especially if you are doing a lot of highway miles and things like that. You travel for work or you commute or, or whatever, um, or, or like you live in an apartment. This is the other thing. Like it's all well and good to say you can charge at home, but what about if you can't put a charger in? Like because you live in a you live in a high rise building, or you know, there's there's lots and lots of things where it it, it one one solution isn't gonna. There's no silver bullet, as I like to say as well. You know, one solution isn't gonna be the answer for everyone. Um, and I think the hybrid for a lot of people just makes a lot more sense just purely from a cost factor, purely from a convenience factor. And maybe, you know, as people transition to more like more hybrid vehicles, they'll start to realize, oh, actually, you know, most days I don't, I only run off the battery. I don't, I don't actually run off. So maybe I could go fully electric because of the way that I actually drive and I'm not, most of the time I'm not really using much fuel. So, because I mean, by contrast, you know, most people say, oh, if you've got uh, like an SUV or something like that, and you're getting, say, 10 or 11 litres per 100 kilometres, that's pretty good mileage. Yep. You know, so, some of these hybrids um, are getting like three or four litres per 100 kilometres. Like, it's insane how much better <laughs> that they're doing. Um, so uh, yeah, I think for a lot of people that that's was the direction. Uh, the, the government didn't specifically say that they were going to target uh, giving discounts on hybrids and things like that. So again, maybe that'll become something once once um, these new regulations that they're they're talking about go into effect. But we will have to just wait and see and, and see what happens. Speaking of things that have happened, Panda Bear, <laughs> what happened this week in Australian history? In Australian history this week, so where do we start? May 24th. So in 1805, William Blythe was appointed the fourth governor of New South Wales. Uh, we all remember William Bly, uh, the mutiny <laughs> on the bounty. So... <laughs> Yeah, he would have been pretty good in the last LNP government. They had mutinies all the time. So, 
1870, Port Adelaide Football Club paid their first match. So a lot of people don't realise that Port Adelaide Football Club is actually quite old, 150 years. I didn't know it was that old. God, I remember we, we lived in Adelaide for wow. a, a year and I was doing um, – Oh, it was it was it was door to door surveys for a uh, a market research company, and as our listeners know, I'm not a sports person, and I remember opening this this door and yeah, went through went through my spiel on I can't even remember what the the survey was a uh, about, and this guy looked at me and he goes, "Do you go do, do you go for Port Adelaide?" And I said, I started to explain that I didn't know, and he saw I knew nothing, just looked at me with this look of disgust and slammed the door in my face, and I thought, oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so in 1917, on May 24th, Australian boxer Les Darcy died in the United States. Everybody knows about Les Darcy, don't we? I know the name, but I don't know about him. Did, did they poison him like Farlap? <laughs> Farlap was his nickname. He was yeah. the champion of the world, but um, he also held the Australian heavyweight championship at the same time. Um, uh, well, you know, in my younger day, which was probably closer to when he actually lived, um, <laughs> he, <laughs> he died in 1970, 1917, my dear listener. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and as we know, Panda Bear has a bit of longevity. Yeah, so I'm. Yeah, me and God are talking about this way to get around this old age thing. You know, we got to do. <laughs> um, okay, May twenty fifth, eighteen seventy, Bush Ranger Captain Thunderbolt was shot and oh. killed in Urala. They had such good names. By Constable yeah. Alexander Walker. Constable Walker later said um, he wasn't old enough, and I didn't have a taser, so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay, maybe I shouldn't go there. Um, oh, yes, you should. Every single time, Panda Bear, you should go there. Okay, 1930, on May 25th, Amy Johnson arrived in Darwin, completing the first solo flight by a woman from England to Australia. That was in 1930. Um, and in 2005, on May 25, the late, great... Gold Logie winner and entertainer Graham Kennedy died. Oh. So Graham Kennedy is well known for his um, bird calls, particularly the crow. Ah. Can you? That's it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, May 26th. In 1998, the first National Sorry Day protest was held. And in 2005, National Sorry Day was renamed to National Day of Healing, but it's still usually referred to as National Sorry Day. So, um, in 1971, on May 26, uh, Qantas was subject to an extortion host for a Mr Brown, um, claimed there was a bomb on a Qantas flight, and, um, yeah, asked for $500,000, I think. You know, so it's... It's a little bit like, um, you know, Austin Powers. A million dollars. You know, 500,000 now is, uh, you know, a minor lottery win. So. <laughs> oh, yeah, but it was 1971. Like, that would have been a lot more money. 
Yeah, but not not that much. Not to do like an like a massive crime for you know, <laughs> like yeah. <laughs> um, as I recall, um, he asked for the um, money to be kept locked, dropped in a waterproof bag in Sydney Harbour, and he would collect it from there. And of course, the SAS got involved, and they were all around Sydney Harbour uh, waiting for him. So. Yeah, it's got a rumor that well, that's an old one. You just you just sparked my memory on that one. Yeah, haven't heard of that for ages. Yeah, so it um, became a pretty big thing. So the SAS and everybody got involved. So I'm surprised uh, there hasn't been a movie made about this. Yeah. So um, mm. May twenty seventh, nineteen sixty seven, Australia held a referendum. Oh God, no. <laughs> Australia held a referendum approving two amendments to the Australian Constitution relating to Indigenous Australians to um, let them have the vote. Okay. Um, I just I couldn't I couldn't resist doing that calculation. A basket using the Reserve Bank of Australia's calculations, inflation calculator. A basket of goods and services valued at five hundred thousand dollars in calendar year. 1971 would in calendar year 2019. Actually, I'm going to get the two. Sorry to interrupt you. Well, I just thought, okay, uh, basket goods and services values at 500k in 2000 in 1971 would in calendar year 2019 cost what? What give me each of you guess one, one uh, of each of you 4.7 million. No, I don't think it'll be that high. Four point seven million. That's so specific. I reckon it's probably like um, I'd say under just under two two million. Five point five million. Holy dollars. shit! Oh my god! Yeah, exactly. I was so, I was so far off. Oh, I know. Sorry, been along, but uh, keep keep going. I just thought that was interesting. Yeah. Okay. So, and a bear. Mate, I'm sorry. May 27th is also the beginning of um, National Reconciliation Week because of that constitution. Yeah. Okay. Um, Peter Dutton has stated quite clearly that if he had been in part of that time, he would have walked out on it. (laughs) Uh, In 2005... Chappelle Corby was convicted of drunk smuggling by an Indonesian court and sentenced to 20 years in jail and immediately started hyperventilating. The sentence was later reduced to 15 years and then they turned around and said, no, just joking, Chappelle, it's back to 20. So... (laughs) The... um... I think she got out after thirteen. Yeah, she's she's back. She she lives in Queensland. I think she's from the Gold Coast. I want to say, um, yeah, Gold Coast. Yeah. And I remember when she arrived home. Oh, it was a few years ago now. Uh, she when she, when she arrived, it was like a big hoo ha because she was like a like a celebrity for some reason. Oh, yeah, I remember um, that rock star oh. back to the country. It was it was like a huge deal. They had to shut down roads and stuff like that. It was like chaos. And yeah. I think she I, she was on like some trashy show like Dancing in the Stars or something like that. Um, yeah. yeah, she's like a full-on celebrity now just because she went yeah. to prison for smuggling drugs. I don't know. 
And she never got a boogie board back. That's no, a tragedy. She didn't. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> May 28th. What's today? 30th. Uh, May 28th. Yeah. Um, Kylie Minogue's birthday, 1968. Kylie Minogue was born on May 28th. Um, yeah, okay. Um, in other who cares business. The singing, singing, singing budgies. That was, I can't remember. Something or other budgie for uh, Kylie. Yeah, singing budgie, I think she, they call her. Yeah. So, um, I do look. I do have a little bit of a soft spot for uh, Kylie, and I do remember hearing in a a story that she was telling about. Uh, there was I can't remember what the artistic event was, and uh, Nick Cave had told her to go up and uh, orate. I should be so lucky as a poem, and apparently vent at a poem, and apparently it went down very well. So I don't know why that sticks in my head, but yeah, I think good luck to them. Look, good luck yeah. to her. She seems to work hard. I yeah, she's part of. She's an order of Australia, like you know. Yeah. Oh, okay. Reckon, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, like um, you know, Prince Philip got a knighthood for God's sake. So, huh. <laughs> um, I reckon. Danny Minogue is actually a better singer and she's the first one to come to prominence on Young Talent Time. Yeah. So, um, Controversy. <laughs> yeah, she was actually the first famous Minogue. So, um, May 29th, 1788, two convicts were killed by Aboriginals at Rushcutters Bay and Bob Catter declared outrage at the time. <laughs> So, 1788. <laughs> You've been around a long time, Bob. So, <laughs> yeah, he is. Goodbye. I think it's outrageous that this is happening. It's such a... <laughs> in 1975, the Family Court of Australia was established, and in 2003, Qantas was back in the news. Qantas flight 1737 between Melbourne and Launceston. There was an attempted hijacking which was thwarted by a flight attendant and passengers. I'm not sure of the exact details, but I can just see the passenger saying, you fucking dirty prick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look, Tasmanians aren't, you know, the smartest group of people, as we've established in the past. So, oh, um, DK, I've never subscribed to that. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> a, a, a Tasmanian hijacker, it's like an oxymoron. It just doesn't. Yeah. yeah. So, what's? Uh, I'm sorry, I couldn't resist thinking if it took two people to put him in a headlock. <laughs> uh, a female flight attendant and passengers. So, I could just imagine it. You know, okay, we're hijacking you. We're flying to New Zealand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ah, fuck it, i got dinner on the table and McDonald's is coming at six o'clock, so no. Nah. <laughs> so that was 2003, so May 30th today. Nineteen twenty-five, Millicent Preston Stanley becomes the first woman member of the New South Wales Legislative Assembly, and in nineteen twenty-eight, Pro Heart, the artist, was born in Broken Hill near New South Wales. In New South Wales, sorry, not near New South Wales. Yeah. In 1988, the thing that put Brisbane on the map, 18 million visits in six months, Expo 88 began. 
So, and the next big thing we've got is the Olympics in 19... What year was it? 1932. Yeah, 1932. Okay. 1932. 2032. Yeah. 2132. Yeah, we're 100 years out. Okay, never mind. What's 100 years here or there? You know, averages have been 65,000 years. I mean, 100 years is nothing. Yes, yes. So, 1989, an Andamaga member, Tim Anderson, is arrested on charges relating to the 1978 bombing. Um, Amanda Marga. God, you've you've whipped out a couple of uh, phrases and, and words in my head tonight. Well, it brings back some old memories. Okay, I actually, when I was a prison officer, I ended up before the ICAC because of this one. <laughs> so, huh. um, um, a prisoner called Raymond John Denning testified against Tim Anderson. Tim Anderson was Raymond John Denning's. Um, Raymond John Denning was also Australia's most wanted at the stage. Uh, Raymond John Denning testified that Tim Anderson, when he was his cellmate, told him that he'd committed the Hilton Hotel bombing. And, of course, Australia's most wanted would be a reliable witness, and Tim Anderson was convicted on that evidence. Um, and then later, Raymond John Denning was one of my prisoners on my work gang, and um, he admitted that he lied, so I had to go before ICAC. And, ah. then, so, and testify before ICAC, so that's my claim to fame with ICAC. I found them quite nice, actually. Oh. No, they actually no. It's bullshit. No, they were pricks. Um, <laughs> so anyway, two years later, um, Raymond John Denning was let out of jail, and eight days after that, he's run over by a truck, and the truck didn't stop, and they never found the driver. So, well, that's okay. a that's an almost Clinton esque um, coincidence, isn't it? Oh, yes, yeah. Okay, in 1991, on May 30th, a television report revealed that Bob Hawke made a secret agreement to hand over the ALP leadership to Paul Keating in 1988. Who would have ever thought that politicians make secret agreements for management mm. succession? So it doesn't happen well, in private companies, it doesn't happen in any, prison, in any business anywhere in the world, but Bob and Paul made a secret agreement. So there you go. Um, I don't think there's any CEO in any business in Australia in the world that hasn't had some sort of similar agreement for you know for leadership succession. So, uh, but apparently it's a pretty pretty big thing at the time. And um, you want to guess which media organisation actually um, revealed that? Oh, it's the bloody ABC, wasn't it? No, I believe, I, I believe it was Murdoch, but you know, yeah, of course, say, of course, Sky, Sky News. I think Murdoch yeah. is trying to buy the ABC now. That you know, they're sort of going along, along with it. So, um, that brings us up to date, May thirtieth. So, you've killed my forex question. Before you're kidding me. Yeah, my forex question this week was, which is the only continent doesn't have a volcano? But DK beat me to it. Oh, is there potentially a chance that you have got another, can crack another uh, beer for us? Our our listeners will be incredibly disappointed if you are. Okay, can we get a beer cracking sound? Yep. Yep. 
Oh, didn't make any noise. Okay, what does the well? Animal... I've got to put that in post mix, and now you now you've now you've mucked it all up, and the, the magic is the magic is the magic's gone, Panda Bear. But we'll we'll put it in and pretend that it happened. We cer- we certainly I got to give us praise for uh, acting so well on that particular instance. So here is one that even the anti vaxxers the no campaigners. And the and the climate change denialists should be able to get. It's all in one and two syllable words. What does the Aboriginal word Akubra mean? Oh, oh shit! Oh. It's very obvious. I want to say hat, but uh, start with H. Wow! But it's not hat. No. First word. I'll do some charades here. Sorry, so it's, it's two words. Two, two, so it's two, two words. words or two syllables? Two words. Uh, one syllable, second word, three syllables. Sorry for the um, no campaigners. It's like head, head cover or something like that. Yeah, head covering head is covering. what I thought too. Yeah, head covering. I didn't – I've got to say, Panda Bear, I didn't even know that. In fact, I didn't know Akubra was uh, a, an Aboriginal word. Yep. So how many Aboriginal languages are there? Oh, lots. Ooh. Isn't there like a thou- over a 1,000 or something? Uh, over Ooh. 500. 500, oh, 500. yeah, okay. There are actually 300 nations in Australia before the white man got here. Yeah. So similar to all the nations that were in Europe and Africa and everywhere else. <laughs> so a lot of people forget that. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad we got an extra one in there. I didn't know that about a Kubra, and I jumped in a little bit. Just, just clarify the uh, the volcano one two for me, for please. Um, the only continent in the world that doesn't have a volcano is Australia. Right, an active volcano. An active, active. volcano. Yeah. yeah, we do have volcanoes, but they're not active. Yeah, um, they're all dormant. Islanders. Yeah, the um, for our Queenslanders that are listening, the Glasshouse Mountains, uh, just north of Brisbane, uh, fantastic four driving. Uh, but those the 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 curious shape of the Glasshouse Mountains, uh, some of them from from a certain angle do look like like a house, hence the name. Uh, they're the remnants of basically the. Uh, if you can imagine, like a cross section of a volcano, where the magma sits inside, it's completely solidified, like a big plug, and then the external, uh, uh, like mountain, has been completely eroded away, and all that's left is this what used to basically be the magma of the volcano, like the in oh. inside the caldera. So the, the like the magma plug, if you like, is actually what we now call the Glasshouse Mountains. You know, we're talking millions and millions and millions of years ago. Um, yeah, I have heard and, that story before. So yeah, um, and that's why they're shaped like that. So yeah, yeah. And um, regardless of what Sheldon says on Big Bang Theory, geology is actually a science. It's a oh. very interesting science. Yeah. Yeah, I used to collect fossils when I was a kid. I lived in the Royal National Park. Uh, it was only after I sort of left the area that I found out it's actually illegal 
to take fossils out of the Royal National I was going to say, last week we had Ardeep confess the crime of stealing acorns from uh, the, from Canberra, and this week we've got Panda Bear confessing he's been stealing fossils. So next week, wait until I reveal what I have been stealing uh, from public spaces. But I think on that bombshell, uh, thank you so much for joining us for another Australia Talks, the official podcast of the r slash Australian subreddit. If you have any feedback or suggestions for topics, please get in touch with us on the r slash Australian subreddit or email us at Australian subreddit at proton.me. Otherwise, join us next week for another episode of Australia Talks. And remember, at r slash Australian, we are Australian. Thank you so much. Good night. Bye, y'all. See you, Panda Bear.